Oh, church family, I think I've said this probably three or four times already, but it is so good to be with you. God gave us the picture-perfect day to do this outside, didn't he? Oh, this is so fun. So today we're starting a brand new message series. We do message series at Charter Oak Church, if you're new with us. And today we are studying, we're starting the study of one particular book of the Bible. We are going to spend three months doing nothing but studying one book of the Bible. We are studying 1 John. And when I say study, we are going to study this book. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to go very deep. We are going to go slow. We are going to take our time because we really want to study. We want to learn how to study, right? And so my prayer for this summer is that it's not just about the content of 1 John, but this is really going to teach us how to not just read our Bibles, but to study our Bibles because studying God's Word is at a different level from reading it, and it is so very important. So here's the challenge for us. The first challenge is very... Well, we have a couple challenges today. I understand my mic's going in and out. We're just going to have to deal with it, Christians, right? If this is the worst thing that happens to us today, we're going to have a very good day. Amen. So the second challenge for us is that our sermon slides today are almost impossible to see. We recognize that. If you want to follow along with our sermon slides, you may access them through our app, our church center app. And you may follow along in the section called Today's Notes. We're also going to get this cleared up next week. So our sermon slides will be much, much easier to see. But today we're just not going to have those slides available to most of us. Here's the real challenge for all of summer. First, I really want to encourage you all to be here every single week this summer. And even when you are on vacation, no problem. Like I said, this video will be right up on social media on our Facebook page. Oh, thank you, Joe. Now, how do I? Oh, I got it. I like handheld mics because they remind me of a lightsaber. And that's the first Star Wars reference. If you're new with us today, I make a lot of Star Wars references. You're just going to have to bear with me on that if you don't care for Star Wars. We may not get along. No, I love you all, even if you don't like Star Wars. Um, no, so, yeah, if, 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 even if you're on vacation, you may join us online. This video will be up at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. Um, and so you can join along with us even if you're out of town on vacation. Here's a huge challenge for us. I said we're going to study First John, and we're really going to study it. I would ask you to bring a physical Bible with you every single week and a Bible, check this out, that you can write in. Would you bring a Bible that you can write in? And I, I know some people feel funny about writing in the Bible. I, I've, I've got to say, for me, and this is just my opinion, I guess, I, for me, the, the pages of the Bible are not what is sacred. It's not the ink that's sacred. It is God's Word that's sacred. And so not only is it okay to write in your Bible, it is very, very encouraged to write in the Bible because that really helps us study. And we're going to walk along every single suggestion of things that we may write in the margins of our Bible. If you don't have a Bible that you are comfortable in writing in, we got you covered. We have this awesome table right over there. Please feel free 
to grab a Bible over there. We have Bibles at our connect table. Those are yours. If you need one, come get one. You can do it now. You can do it after the service. That is yours to take with you and write in if you would like to. I know we have an absolute ton of people here today. If we run out of Bibles, we'll get you a Bible next week. Bring a Bible that you can write in. Or if you take notes on the Bible app, you can do that too. Third challenge, then we'll get to the message. I really want to encourage us to memorize Scripture this week. Over the next week and over the next three months as we're studying 1 John, I want to challenge you to memorize the entire first chapter of 1 John. And I really want to encourage you to do that. Why, Christians, may it be valuable for us to memorize Scripture? Do you see any value in that? If you're confused as the value on whether or not we should memorize Scripture, we got to go to Psalm 1 that says, Blessed is the one, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Christians got a very important question to ask you. How are we supposed to avoid walking in the way of the wicked? We've got to know God's word. We have got to be people who know God's word, who have it memorized so we can access it when we go into those valleys. And so I want to encourage you to memorize the first chapter of 1 John. And we have 13 weeks to do that, so it shouldn't be a problem. My friends, we just want to be people who take this very seriously. We want to be people who take God's Word very, very seriously. So, let's get started. Before we even start reading the first four verses, that's all we're doing today, we're reading four verses of 1 John, some background on 1 John. If you have a physical Bible with you, 1 John is very hard to find. If you're not used to reading Scripture yet, you may not know where 1 John is. 1 John, right before 2 John. Thank you for laughing at that. No, it's, it's real. <laughs> that's super corny humor. If you're new with us, the humor will get better, if not more frequent. So, yeah, 1 John, hard to find. It's towards the back of the Bible. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. All joking aside, if you hit 2 John, you've gone too far. It's not the Gospel of John. There are three small pieces of literature stacked back to back to back. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, then Jude, then Revelation. So it's somewhere in there. There's no shame in going to the table of contents in your Bible to find 1 John. Now, something else you'll realize if you're starting to read ahead a little bit, the author of 1 John is not identified. And in most books of the New Testament, the author identifies himself. So how do we know that John or somebody named John wrote this? Why do we attribute these three letters to John? Well, if you do look at the Gospel of John that we do know was written by the disciple of Jesus Christ named John, the themes and the language are exactly the same. So we can say with absolutely full confidence that the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, 
also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So why did John write this letter? This we have a specific answer for. We actually find the purpose written towards the end of the letter in verse 5, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The reason that John is writing this to his original audience is so they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have eternal life. John uses the phrase eternal life 23 times throughout all of his writings. 23 times. Six times here in 1 John. John loves talking about eternal life. He uses the words know or perceive almost 50 times. So John wanted the women and the men in the churches around him to know that they have eternal life. And I am so desperate for you to know today that no matter what happens today or tomorrow or 10 years from now, that you have eternal life if you have accepted Jesus' gift of it. And so, yes, today we are tackling 1 John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And if you haven't already done that, would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1? One of the problems with a handheld mic is it's hard to, hard to read Scripture. There we go. Let me read this for you all. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We write this to make our joy complete. So the first thing you and I need to do today if we are really studying these four verses is to start connecting some dots. We've got to start connecting some dots. Remember, this is the same person who wrote the gospel of John. And so going back to verse 1, let's really dig into this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, I mean, truly, my friends, I, I know sometimes that, that, that we, we do Bible reading plans, right? And it, that, that, that's an awesome thing. If you have the Bible app, they have so many good, awesome reading plans, right, that, that you can download and read. Some of those plans are reading through the Bible in a year. There's also nothing wrong with reading the Bible in the year. The problem with doing a study like that is that you're reading three, four, five chapters a day, and that's great. Definitely encourage that. 
but I know human nature because I suffer from it myself. And my temptation, if I have to read five and six chapters in one day, is that I start to do what? Speed read. Have you ever been involved in a, let's say, a read the Bible through in a year plan and you've just started to speed read? You're really not understanding what you're reading. You're just reading to get through anybody else or is it just me? So I really encourage not only doing that plan, which is fine, but taking Bible study verse by verse by verse and going slow and digging into it. Because with this one verse, there is so much to unpack here. We could spend the next two months, three months studying this one verse. So much to unpack here. So when you are studying this at your home, when you are studying this with a friend or a neighbor or with your small group, here's how you may go about studying a verse of the Bible. Now let's first start on the surface. You can ask yourself whenever you read any verse, what is this talking about? Or more specifically here, who is the author talking about? Now we can gather from context clues that John is probably, probably talking about who? Jesus. John is probably talking about Jesus here. But how do we know for sure he's talking about Jesus? Well, this is really cool. When you get in the habit of really studying your Bible and really taking your time, having no agenda, I don't have to get through a chapter, I don't have to get through five chapters, I'm just reading this one verse and praying that the Holy Spirit touches me, you're going to start to have words or concepts just grab hold of you. When you get into the habit of really studying your Bible, you're going to start to have these concepts reach out and grab you. And if I'm reading verse 1 of 1 John, the first word that jumps out to me is the word beginning. Because I know the Apostle John wrote this. And when I hear the Apostle John write beginning, I get deja vu because I've heard this word before. And so maybe if you are studying this in your home or even right now, you you may be encouraged to just circle the word beginning. You may circle the word beginning. And again, you can literally write right there in the Bible. And I want to give you a little cheat right here because I'll tell you where to go to find out exactly who John is talking about. You can write in the margin right there in 1 John. You may write in the margin right next to the word beginning, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because John has said this word before. If you go back and cross-reference the gospel of John, Here's what he writes in the first chapter of the gospel. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And if you took the time to turn to the gospel, you might circle the word beginning there and write 1 John chapter 1 because we're connecting dots. And there are these cross-references, hundreds and hundreds of them all throughout the Bible. 
It's all true, by the way. It's all true. Back to 1 John. Now, when you start to see repeating themes, especially in one sentence, when you start to see things repeating, it is probably very important. And here in verse 1, we see a lot of verbs in this sentence. Heard, seen, looked, and touched. If you see these repeating patterns, you may underline these as recognition that there is something here. There's something here. And so all of these verbs are written apparently in the past tense. And so we gather that the person who wrote this has experienced Jesus before. The person who wrote this is absolutely an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. And if we do a little bit more digging, if we do an even little bit more digging, and we get into the original Greek language that this was originally written in, maybe we're using a Bible study tool like blueletterbible.org, and we look at the original language, you will see, and I know this is a lot of digging now, you'll see that this was actually written in the past perfect tense. Not just the past tense, but the past perfect tense. There's a differentiation between the past tense, past perfect tense. Why does it matter? The past perfect tense means something that has happened in the past, but has a profound effect on the present and the future. So what profound difference has verse 1 made for the present and for the future. What John is going to talk about in verse 2 is the concept of the incarnation. And we have got to talk about this. It's the incarnation. Verse 2 says this, The life appeared. The life appeared. We have seen and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Again, what John is talking about is the theological notion of incarnation. That's an old school theological word. What that means is something becoming flesh. Something becomes flesh. Incarnation happens when something intangible becomes tangible. And usually, incarnation is a literary device. It's a romantic notion. It's a poetic notion. I'll give you an example. Men, what you may do if you really want to kind of score some points with your wife or your girlfriend, you might tell them something really romantic like, hey, wife, hey, girlfriend, you are beauty incarnate. Doesn't that sound nice? Guys are like, what are you talking about? Your wives and girlfriends are saying, man, that would be so nice if he said that to me. You are love incarnate. It doesn't just work in the romantic sense. I might look at my office, my desk in my office and say, this is, this is messiness incarnate, right? I may, I may look at the Pittsburgh Pirates and say they are frustration incarnate. And I told my friend Wynn Ham this morning that I've got to stop taking pop shots at the Pirates because they're doing really well lately. So, you know, God bless that for all you Pirates fans. No, this is usually a poetic hyperbole when we talk about incarnation. Except for this one time, except for this one time in human history when incarnation actually physically 
happened, and that was the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God, when God came to earth in the person of Jesus. John wrote this, life appeared. Life appeared in the form of a human being, in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. That concept should give us goosebumps. So you may, if you are studying your scripture very deeply, you may circle the word appeared in your Bible, and you may write incarnation in the margin. And we keep connecting the dots. If you turn back to the Gospel of John, again, you don't have to do this right now in the moment, but if you turn back to the Gospel of John, verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John is really passionate about God being incarnate in Jesus Christ. And John is really passionate about God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ because a lot of people in John's day didn't believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. A lot of people didn't believe that. And I don't blame them because it is very, very difficult to believe if you're a Christian today, the thing that you believe in is very difficult to believe. Ask the people of the city of Greensburg that we are trying to reach. God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ is difficult to wrap our heads around. And so John and all of his fellow disciples that actually witnessed Jesus and saw it and heard what he had to say and touched the wounds and saw the empty tomb, John and all of his friends dedicated their life to writing these letters and telling people that God did in fact become incarnate in Jesus Christ. And these words that we read in verse 2 of 1 John are just as relevant for us today as they were 2,000 years ago. Because there are so many people today I would venture to say that there are so many Christians today that have a very small view of Jesus. Do you perhaps understand what I am saying? There are so many people today that look at Jesus and say, well, he was, I'm sure he was a good guy. I'm sure he was a fine teacher. Maybe someday, possibly, sort of, I will get around to maybe reading the Bible. That's a small view of Jesus Christ. Do you know what a big view of Jesus Christ is? A big view of Jesus Christ is making Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Well, that's a big view of Jesus. It's not just knowing what Jesus had to say. It's actually applying what he said to your life and to my life. That's a big view of Jesus. And so when we say Jesus is Lord of my life, what we really mean by that, if we want to get really serious, is Jesus Christ is Lord of my marriage, if I am married. Jesus Christ is Lord of my relationship with my children, if we have children. He's the Lord of my interactions with my friends and my neighbors. He's the Lord of what I do in my free time. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my wallet. Jesus Christ is the Lord of how I organize my calendar. 
That's what we mean by a very big view of Jesus Christ. And Christians, let me take a step back from this and really dig into what John is saying here, I think. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, who is? Is it you? Are you Lord of your own life? I don't want to talk about you for a second because you're all lovely people. Let me talk about myself for a second. Now, I have the option of making Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, according to John, I have the option to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. Do you know who Jesus Christ is and was? He is the author of life. Jesus Christ knitted together the fabric of reality. He set the foundations of reality, invented concepts like life and love and laughter. That's who wants to be Lord of my life. And then there's me. Now, I'm not a bad person. But two days ago, I left the keys in my ignition in my car when I went into a conference for four hours and the car was running. That's who I am. I'm somebody who failed the first time he tried to make ramen noodles because I put the pot of water on the wrong burner. That's who I am. And, and, and so you have me, Lord of my life, or Jesus Christ, Lord of my life. And if I have that option, do you know who I'm going to go with? Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And maybe you might make the same decision, too. Again, you are all lovely people, and I don't know exactly what you have done in your life, but it's probably safe to say that you have made some mistakes in your life. Is that correct? If you don't think you made any mistakes in your life, why don't you whip out that yearbook for me? Let's take a look at your yearbook picture and see if you've made any mistakes in your life. I suspect you have. You and I have the option of making Jesus Christ the Lord of our life. That's what John is trying to communicate here in verse 2. Jesus is God incarnate. He's not, he's not a small view Jesus. He is a big view Jesus. He is not just a nice guy. He's not just a pretty good teacher. He is master. He is savior. He is Lord. And not just of the universe, but you and I have to make the decision if he is Lord of my life. That's who we are as the church. That's what we confess. And speaking of us as the church, let's move on to verse 3. Where John is going to talk about the concept of fellowship, of, of the Greek word of koinonia. Here's what verse 3 says. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. There's those words again so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. This word of fellowship. This word fellowship. Now, that's kind of an old-school, old-timey word. We don't normally use the word fellowship in normal conversations. So what is a synonym for the word fellowship? Just shout it out. One I got all day. But no, this is kind of the point. We don't know what fellowship means, right? What does fellowship mean? It means relationship, right? 
It means communion, doesn't it? We love the word fellowship. We love the word relationship at Charter Oak Church. What we hope to do in our community is build relationships with people to earn the right to tell them about the kingdom of heaven because the concept of the kingdom of heaven is very difficult to wrap our human minds around. So we build relationships with people by feeding them and loving them and serving them and earning the right to tell them about the kingdom of heaven. It's what we do. We love the word fellowship. We love the word relationship. The original Greek word for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It's a Greek word, koinonia. You don't necessarily need to memorize that, but the original spirit of koinonia is sharing something in common with others. Sharing something really important in common with others. It's a relationship where you may disagree in the non-essentials. Listen to this very carefully. It's a relationship where you may disagree in the non-essentials, but you must agree in the essentials. The relationship I have with my wife, Erin, is a koinonia relationship. We are very different people. Did you know my wife not only does not enjoy Star Wars... But my wife also doesn't enjoy bacon. Did you know that about my wife? She is my favorite human being on the planet. She is my favorite human being on the planet. The Venn diagram of all the people on the planet who don't like Star Wars and don't like bacon intersects with one person, and it's my wife, Erin. And I love her so very much. And, and, and people say all the time, well, how does that marriage work? And I say very truthfully, it works very, very well. Because those things are not essential. Those things are completely not essential. Do you know why our marriage works so well? Because we agree in the essentials. We chase after Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love each other more than any human being on this earth. We love our kids. Those are essential things. So our relationship and our marriage is a koinonia relationship. I have a koinonia relationship with my small group. We agree in the essentials. We're all different men. But we agree in the essentials. What you and I have here is a koinonia relationship. The church is the ultimate koinonia relationship. And so if you are writing in your Bible, feel free to underline the word fellowship. And you may write the word koinonia in the margins. And we are the ultimate koinonia. Now a lot of times, church families, we get into trouble. A lot of times we get into trouble because we get confused about what is non-essential and what is essential. And that is for every church to decide. That's for every individual in the church to decide. And so especially if you are new with us today, what binds our church family together, what binds us together is not the style of music that we play. It's not what binds us together. What binds us together is not the color scheme in our kids' ministry room. What binds us together 
is not whether we're inside or outside for worship. What binds you and I together as a church is what we believe about God and what we do about it. What binds you and I together as the church is what we believe about God and what we do about it. When I am out in our community all the time, People ask me when I'm, when I'm evangelizing to them, when I'm telling them about Jesus, people ask me all the time, well, what kind of church is your church? What kind of church is your church? Anybody ever ask you that about Charter Oak Church? What kind of church is it? Is it a liberal church? Is it a conservative church? Is it a traditional church? Is it evangelical? Just tell me what kind of church it is. The best way that I answer that question, and I love to say this, we are a Bible-believing church. We are a, that's what binds us together in Koinonia. We are a Bible-believing church to the best of our fallen human ability. We want to proclaim with truth and love that Jesus Christ is Lord. That what's, that's what binds us together in Koinonia Fellowship. And nothing is going to tempt us away from that, not societal pressure, not our denomination. We want to be as brave as John was. We want to be as brave as John was, refuting false teaching about who Jesus Christ is. We don't have a small view of Jesus. We have a very large view of who Jesus is. God became incarnate to do what? 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is in case we're ever confused Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And when you and I put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, when we make him Lord of our life, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with each other. That should give us the greatest joy. That should give you and I the greatest joy. And finally today, very quickly, we're going to turn to verse 4. And talk about complete joy. John writes, we write this to make our joy complete. And this is a fantastic way to close out what you and I have to study today. John said, I write this to make our joy complete. And John wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. A disciple named John. And what he wrote gave him the greatest gave him the greatest joy. And this is so important that you may circle the word joy if you are writing in your Bible. What gives you joy in your life? Is it spending time with friends, spending time with family, taking vacation, <laughs> playing video games, watching sports? What gives you joy? I love all of those things. All of those things bring me joy. But for John and his fellow disciples, their greatest joy was telling other people about Jesus. 
That was their greatest joy. It's how they spent their time. They wrote letters. They traveled. They planted churches all to give themselves joy by spreading the joy of Jesus Christ to other people. By the way, our next baptism Sunday is at the end of August. I wonder who's going to be baptized, like, right here. I wonder who in August is going to be baptized here in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Would you please continue extending invitations for your friends and neighbors to join us? Because that's who we are as the church. That's what binds us together in koinonia fellowship. We are disciple makers at Charter Oak Church. I know we all have friends and neighbors who don't believe in Jesus Christ. I know we all have friends and neighbors who have a very small view of Jesus Christ. But there was a man 2,000 years ago named John who said it was my greatest joy. In fact, it completes my joy to tell you that you have everlasting life. I wonder literally right now if John is observing us right now from his seat in heaven. I wonder if John is looking at us right now and smiling and having joy right now, even amidst the heavenly host, knowing that his word is being studied 2,000 years after it was written in Greensburg, Pennsylvania in 2022. Let's continue making John's joy complete as we continue telling our neighbors that they have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father God, what in the world does it mean to have joy? What is it that gives us pleasure? What is it that we seek after? Holy Spirit, would you move in us? That one day we may get to a place where we can say with full confidence, our greatest joy is the same joy our brother John experienced. And that is to tell other people about you. To know that we have everlasting life and to spread that everlasting life to our neighbors that have not yet accepted it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring people to write it down. Thank you for giving us the space in our life to study your word as if we hungered and thirsted for it. And it is in your precious Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Amen.